Chapter 20, A Team United in Life and Death Jeremy Glick was still talking with his wife Liz as the counterattack began to be formulated among those on United Flight 93. Jeremy told Liz that the passengers were discussing what to do, that they were going to take a vote. What do you think we should do, he asked his wife. Go for it, Liz told him. She knew he really had no choice. It had become increasingly clear that this was not the kind of hijacking from which people escaped without injury. The terrorists weren't going to land the plane and walk away peacefully. Somebody was likely to die, and maybe a lot of people. Unlike the passengers aboard the other hijacked flights on September 11th, the passengers aboard Flight 93 had been given an unlikely gift. The inconvenience and delay caused by the traffic jam on Newark's runways, which had provided them with both time and information. The passengers dared not sit back idly while the plane streaked toward another national landmark. Better to make some attempt to recapture the cockpit. Jeremy told Liz that some of the passengers were debating about what they could use for weapons. He laughed nervously. I've got my butter knife from breakfast. About that same time, Tom Burnett called Dina, his wife, again. We're going to do something, he told her. A veteran flight attendant, Dina knew that resistance was not the prescribed method for dealing with hijackings. Everything in the book said don't confront, don't make waves, just get the plane on the ground and let the authorities handle it. Understandably, she emphasized that procedure to her husband. Tom, sit down, please, be still, be quiet. Don't draw attention to yourself. Wait for the authorities. We can't wait, Dina, Tom replied straightforwardly. If they're going to run this plane into the ground, we're going to do something. I love you, Tom. What else should I do? Just pray, Dina. Just pray. And then Tom hung up the phone for the final time. In the cockpit, one of the hijackers can be heard on the voice recorder telling another terrorist to let the guys in now. Presumably the other two hijackers. The role of the fourth has never been ascertained sensed that the passengers were becoming more difficult to control and retreated to the cockpit area. One of the hijackers in the cockpit began to pray. Then the hijackers discussed using an axe whose sole purpose was to break the glass around the fire extinguisher in case of fire in the cockpit to subdue the passengers. Instead, they turned off the autopilot and rocked the jet probably in an attempt to send any would-be attackers reeling. Lisa Jefferson indicated to me that at several points during their 15-minute phone call, Todd put the phone down, moved around the plane to talk with other passengers, and then returned to their conversation. Lisa told me if I hadn't known it was a real hijacking, I'd have thought it was a crank call because Todd was so rational and methodical about what he was doing. She told me of Todd's involvement in the counterattack and the message that Todd had asked her to convey to me. She recalled Todd asked me, in case I don't make it through this, would you please call my family and let them know how much I love them? I promised him that I would. He told me that he had two boys, David and Andrew, and said his wife was also expecting another baby in January. After that, the plane took another dive down and began flying erratically. There was another outburst, and I could still tell in Todd's voice that he was feeling nervous, but still calm. When the plane jolted, Todd shouted, Oh, God! Then he said, Lisa, I have not given him my name, as I had introduced myself as Mrs. Jefferson. And I said, Yes. 
He said, oh, that's my wife's name. And I said, that's my name too, Todd. Then he asked me if he didn't make it, would I keep that promise and find his wife and children and let them know he loved his family very much. He even gave me his home phone number. When the plane was flying in an erratic fashion, he thought he had lost connection with me. He was hollering, Lisa, Lisa. I said, I'm still here. I'm not going anywhere. I'll be here as long as you will. He seemed concerned about losing the connection and just wanted me to stay on the phone. I told him I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be right here with you. We're going to do something. I don't think we're going to get out of this thing, Todd said. I'm going to have to go out on faith. He told me they were talking about jumping the guy with the bomb. Are you sure that's what you want to do, Todd? Lisa asked. It's what we have to do, Todd told her. He asked me to recite the Lord's Prayer with him, Lisa said, and I did. We recited it together from the start to the finish. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. At the conclusion of the prayer aboard Flight 93, Todd said, Jesus, help me. I knew that if Todd didn't make it, Lisa told me he was definitely going to the right place. Although I'd never heard before of Todd reciting the Lord's Prayer in pressure situations, I wasn't surprised to hear he had quoted it. Recently, our pastor had taught a 12-week series of lessons on the Lord's Prayer. Todd had known the prayer since childhood, but each line of it had become more special to him as he discovered how fraught with meaning it really was. At the close of the series, the pastor passed out Lord's Prayer bookmarks and Todd had his in the Tom Clancy book he had been reading in Rome the week before. Part of the prayer that intrigued Todd was the line in which Jesus taught us to ask God to forgive our trespasses or sins as we forgive those who trespass against us. When Lisa told me Todd had prayed that particular prayer, I felt certain that in some way Todd was forgiving the terrorists for what they were doing. Following the prayer, Todd recited the 23rd Psalm. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Other men apparently joined in with him or recited the psalm themselves. Interestingly, Psalm 23 wasn't a mantra Todd recited often, but it was resonant in his spirit because he had learned it as a child. When the crisis came, Todd was able to tap into a deep reservoir of faith that he had been storing up for years. Lisa Jefferson recalls, after that he had a sigh in his voice and he took a deep breath. He was still holding the phone, but I could tell he had turned away from the phone and was talking to someone else. He said, are you ready? Okay, let's roll. It was nearly 10 a.m. The plane was 15 to 20 minutes away from Washington, D.C. Jeremy said to Liz, hang on the line, I'll be back. Liz couldn't bear to listen, so she handed the phone to her dad. They're doing it, he said. When I allow myself, I can picture it. From the rear galley of a 757 to the front cockpit area is a distance of more than 100 feet. Big men move quickly up a narrow aisle, accompanied perhaps by a flight attendant or two, carrying coffee pots, spilling boiling water on themselves as they run. Some jump over seats to get as much manpower to the front of the plane as possible. A food cart is used to ram the enemy. 
All around the airplane is filled with screams and commotion. Flight attendant Sandy Bradshaw is on the phone with her husband Phil. I have to go, she tells him. We're running to first class now. Elizabeth Wainio, who has just borrowed a cell phone from another passenger, is talking with her stepmother. I have to go, she explains, cutting her call short. They're breaking into the cockpit. I love you. Goodbye. CC Ross Lyles is on the phone with her husband Lorne when the screaming starts. They're doing it, she yells. They're doing it. Just what they were doing or how they were doing it may never be completely known. The cockpit voice recorder contains sounds of dishes shattering and other objects being hurled. The hijackers are heard screaming at each other to hold the cockpit door. Someone cries out in English. Let's get them. One of the hijackers frantically attempts to cut off the oxygen in order to quell the passengers' fight. Another of the terrorists tells his cohorts, "Take it easy." Pounding sounds on the cockpit door. A male passenger shouts. More screaming. The plane begins to dive. The hijackers shout, "Allahu Akbar! God is great!" Papers rustle within the cockpit as the hijackers begin fighting amongst themselves for the plane's controls. "Give it to me!" One of them commands. Too late. The plane rocks from side to side and then flips over before streaking straight down, blasting a hole in the earth 50 feet deep. Thousands of gallons of burning jet fuel spray the trees, instantly scorching the tree line as though a raging forest fire has recently been put out. The airplane is obliterated. Yet Flight 93 had not crashed into the Capitol, nor had it smashed into the White House. Camp David or any other national landmark. Instead, it crashed at 10:03 a.m. on September 11th in an open field with only a stone cabin nearby and the closest home more than a quarter of a mile away. Meanwhile, Lisa Jefferson remained on the line waiting for Todd to come back. Hearing all the commotion on board the plane, she recalls, then it went silent. I didn't hear anything else from him. I kept the phone line open for about 15 minutes, hoping he would come back to the phone. I called his name, but he never came back. About 10 minutes later, we heard that a plane had crashed near Pittsburgh, and I knew that was his plane. It was United Flight 93. When I took off the headset that morning, I felt that in the 15 minutes we had together, Todd and I had bonded as good friends. I felt like I had made a friend for life, and I felt that I had just lost a friend. I told Lisa that no doubt Todd had felt the same way. Then I thanked her for being such a rock for Todd, a comfort for him and for me, and I thanked her for the wonderful gift she had given my family and me with the news of her conversation with Todd. When Lisa told me about Todd saying, "Let's roll," I had to smile. That was so Todd. He said that I asked her to be certain. Yes, he did. He said, "Are you ready?" Okay, let's roll. They were Todd's last words. That's his phrase. I said we use that phrase all the time with our boys. When they hear "Let's roll," they head for the door. They know what it means. Sort of, let's get ready for the next thing we're going to do. And Todd said, "Let's roll." Interestingly, Lisa told me it was a miracle that Todd's call hadn't been disconnected, because of the enormous number of calls that day, the GTE systems overloaded and lines were being disconnected all around her. As she sat at the operator's station outside of Chicago, talking to Todd, she kept thinking, "This call is going to get dropped." Yet Todd stayed connected all the way to the end. 
The calls describing what happened aboard Flight 93 meant so much to me and to millions of Americans. The courageous actions of the passengers and crew reminded me that on a day when people around the world felt violated, helpless, alone, and afraid, there were still people of character. People who, in the midst of crisis, dared to live to the last second with hope. Truly, the valiant heroes aboard Flight 93 fought the first battle in what President Bush declared as a war against terrorism, and won.